look, my 70-year-old mama, if she can get me a bucket and stop somebody on defense, I'll play her. Hello and welcome to today's episode of the Basketball Strong Podcast. I'm Tim DeFrancesco, former LA Lakers strength and conditioning coach and doctor of physical therapy, and I'm here with my co-host, Emmy-nominated writer and author, Phil White. This podcast is not just for basketball junkies. It's for anyone who loves to hear the human stories behind great people while learning the science behind preparing your body for the court and high performance. Today's episode is part two to the incredible part one that we did with the legendary Byron Scott. If you didn't get a chance to listen to part one, get back and listen to it because Byron dropped pure fire in that part one. In this episode, Byron talks about the transition from playing to coaching for him, how the 80s Showtime Lakers had way more leaders than just Magic Johnson like everybody thinks, the Hall of Fame coaches who planted the coaching seed in him, and what it was like mentoring a young Kobe, and also what shocked him about Kobe in those early years, along with a few other nuggets. So let's get into the conversation. So you mentioned having to fall on your face a little bit, you know, and and he did the same in the business world. Can you talk us through your transition, another transition from from the end of your playing days into coaching? You know, I feel that was that was um, another one that was a little bit more difficult because of the fact that I, I realized really early when I got into coaching that you know I, I have to worry about fifteen guys instead of just one when I played I all I had to do is make sure I was ready you know I I, I don't have to point the finger at nobody else I'm gonna make sure I'm ready I'm in the best shape I can be uh, I'm gonna play as hard as I can play I'm gonna do everything I can as an individual to be ready to give everything I had on the, on the basketball court so I just had to worry about me you know and my other thought was always you have to be ready so you don't let your teammates down you know mm-hmm. but when you're going to coaching you got 15 guys you got to worry about with all different personalities all different ideas. You know, you got the 11, 12, 13 guy think that, that you hate them because that's why you're not playing them. They don't realize they're just not good enough. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know? So you got to deal with all that as a coach uh, and try to manage that, you know, manage those guys as well. And, and it's, 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 uh, it's a lot tougher, you know. So that was the biggest thing I learned when I got into coaching is that, you know, first of all, you can't make everybody happy. You just can't, mm. you, you know, you have 15 players, you're not going to, everybody's not going to be happy. Everybody ain't going to like you. So get ready for that, you know. And, you know, as long as you understand that going into coaching, then you got a chance to be successful. You know, I would have meetings with our guys, and, and Tim knows this. I, I would tell guys, listen, if you think I have an agenda, you're wrong. My agenda is to win. You guys have agendas because you want to play more. You want to average points. You want to get a new contract. As a coach, I can't have an agenda. My agenda is to win. So if I don't like you as a person, I'll, if you can play and help me win, I'll play you. Right. And I used to tell them, look, my 70-year-old mama, if she can get me a bucket and stop somebody on defense, I'll play her. She's in. I have, I have no agenda. And, and a lot of players don't understand that, that it, you know, from a coaching standpoint, I'm not going to cut my, my nose to spite my face because I don't like you as a person especially if you can flat out play, if you're one of my top players, you know, so that's something that a lot of guys don't understand. But as a coach, you know, that's the one thing I tried to make extremely clear, you know, from the get go is that I have no agenda. My agenda is to win. So don't, you know, you know, I know how you guys are because I played, 
you're going home and why coach ain't playing y'all coach don't like me he, you know, he's an asshole no no i'm not playing you because you're not good enough <laughs> <laughs> is that you know these other five six seven guys are better you know so that was a transition for me is really understanding that you know uh i had to take care of me back in the day now i gotta look out for all these guys and i gotta be a little bit of a a psychiatrist a doctor a mom a dad you know because you gotta you know you gotta bargain with some guys you gotta you gotta be able to you know figure out what makes each guy tick and, and that's a job within itself and, it, and it's, it's, it's a lot of work as a, as a, as a coach. You know, I, I didn't understand that until I got into coaching. Then I understood what Pat Riley was always doing on the back of the damn plane at two in the morning flying back from New York when we had, you know, when we just got our, our, own, our own plane. But he would be the only one back there with a light on going over stuff. And I was like, it can't be that hard. But, yeah, it is that hard. <laughs> you got to think about every individual on that team, especially nowadays. I, I don't think they had to back in our day because basically we just said whatever the coach say goes. You know, basically, guys nowadays, they want to question everything, uh, you know, and, and if it's not going their way, they're going to call their agent and complain. The agent's calling the general man. It's just, it's just a different world now. No, totally for sure. different. And you played, you played though, the other – I have to imagine one of the other big differences, especially in those early years of the your time with the Lakers, you had such a stock of leadership from there wasn't just one leader on that right. squad. You know, there, right. you know, can you talk about that? Who, who were the, the group like who were the leaders um, plural? Because there's general managers now on, on from that team. There's coaches that came from that team. There's Hall of Famers. I mean, the, the, there's just a lot of leadership that was going through there. Yeah, I think everybody, if you if you looked at us playing in the 80s, you would you would obviously say Magic Johnson's the leader of that team. And, and he was. He was one of the right. greatest leaders I've ever seen. I mean, uh, he was a leader that was extremely uh, positive when he was on the floor. And, you know, he knew who needed a shot when they needed a shot, you know, and things of that nature. Kareem was kind of the quiet, Kareem was our EF Hutton, you know, when Kareem spoke, everybody listened, you know what I mean? He, he didn't, he didn't talk a whole lot, but when he did, everybody listened to, to the captain, you know? Right. And then Coop was, our, Coop was our like raw, raw leader. He, he was a very emotional leader. Um, and so those three guys, you know, especially my early years were like our, our leaders out there on that basketball court. They were the leader of our teams. Um, you know, obviously four or five years into the lead, I became one of the leads because Magic would tell me to talk to that guy and talk, you know, B, you go talk to him. He ain't listening to me. You go, you know, <laughs> I was like, all right, I got him, Buck. I got him, you know. So I became one of those guys as well. But like you said earlier, Tim, we had so many guys that were leaders on yeah. that team that it made that team so great because everybody kept everybody accountable. You know, Magic, you know, wasn't, you know, if he if he made a bad pass, you know, everybody didn't sit there talking about, that's okay, okay. No, but he was open, man. You know, I mean, we would get on, and he and he wanted that. You know, all our guys wanted that that type of accountability. And we held, we held each other to a high standard, man. I mean, you know, in order to win championships, you know, that you, you got to be held at a high standard. And our guys were like that every single day of the year until the year, until the season was over. And if we didn't win a championship, it, it was a bust, you know, getting to the finals, losing, it's a bust. Winning the Western Conference, you know, getting it, you know, it was all about championships or nothing. I love that. You mentioned Co- Coach Riley in passing there. What's a, a couple of lessons either 
basketball wise or just what it means to be a man in this world that you learn from from Riles? I, you know what, one of Riles's, um, I, I think, patented speeches that he gave one time is that, and it was against Boston. Uh, and, you know, at that time, Boston was kicking our ass all the time. I mean, they had beat us eight straight times, not us, but the Laker organization, eight straight times in the finals. So, you know, you can listen to Larry Bird talk about, yeah, you know, Boston, you know, Lakers, we always supposed to beat them. You know, it's been done like that in the history. You know, so all, all that talk, right? And I remember Pat Riley getting ready for game one, which we ended up getting, you know, massacred in that game. The Memorial Day Massacre came back to win the series. Is one of his uh, patented speeches was, at some point in time as a man, you got to plant your feet and stand firm. And that was that time. And, and, I, and I never forgot that. You know, as, at every point, you know, at some point in your life as a man, you're going to have to plant your feet and stand firm. And uh, we took that. You know, we didn't plan them well that game because we got beat by 40. But boy, did we come back the next five games and put a whooping on them. But that's something that I always remember him saying is, you know, when, when he would make a speed is that his father told him that one day and he told us. And I was like, man, I, I, I it's been embedded in my head ever since. You know, as a man, every now and then, you know, one point, one time you're going to have to come and plant your feet and stand firm and uh, basically look the bully in the eye. And that's what we looked at the Celtics. They were kind of like the bullies because of the way they played, you know, that physical brand. But we was like, okay, you know, we're ready for it. But, yeah, I'll, I'll never forget that from Pat Riley. That's, that's so powerful. So you, you, you talk in terms of those, I guess, kind of first five, four, four, five years, five, six years, you, you end up with a couple, couple championships out of that. And it's kind of rolling. I mean, you guys had to work for it. Like you said, it wasn't easy. You had to, you had to face that bully and it was not easy. Uh, people may look back now and just say, man, they were just reeling off, you know, championships. It was just all gravy. It wasn't, but you had to work for it. Um, but then can you take us into kind of that middle part of the, your, your career, um, maybe what that was like when you got traded from the Lakers and, you know, what, how you processed that? Yeah, that was tough. I didn't, you know, it's funny. I didn't get traded. I played 10 straight years with the Lakers got it. and uh, got Jerry it. West, came off. they had drafted Anthony Peter, who we talked about earlier and Jerry West and I, uh, sit there and he said, you know, we're not going to resign you. And, uh, you. and you remember Jerry. Jerry was a very emotional guy, you know, and Jerry's the one that brought me to L.A. So this was really tough for him. He just started crying and, you know, he started crying, made me start crying, you know, and I, and I knew that my run with the Lakes was over and, um, you know, I was going to have to go elsewhere. But, you know, I, I had no ill will whatsoever. I love Jerry West. That's my basketball dad. And, you know, right. you, you, you know, sooner or later, you know, things end. You know, and I knew this was the end of a great, a great tenure for me, you know, being there 10 straight years, winning three championships, going to the finals six times or seven out of those 10 years. That's, that's a hell of an accomplishment. And, you know, so at that time I'm a free agent and, you know, I'm looking to, you know, play with somebody else and uh, all the free agents had pretty much signed up and I was just kind of left out there, but I kept working and I knew that, you know, sooner or later somebody was going to pick me up and Indiana came a call in. You know, Portland called first and they said, we just don't have enough money for you. We don't want to, you know, disrespect you by even making you this offer. And Indiana called and said, well, we got, you know, we got a nice little chunk of change for you, but it's only a one year, it's only a one year deal. And Larry Brown was the head coach and Donnie Walsh and they, uh, they were coming to LA to play the Clippers and asked me to come to the game. And I said, sure. So I came to the game and after the game was over, Larry Brown said, listen, 
I got two questions for you. If you can answer these two questions, you know, with, with yes, then we would, we would love to sign you as soon as possible. I said, all right, what's the two questions? He said, number one, we need leadership on this team. Can you help lead this team? I said, yeah. Number two, we need somebody that can come off the bench and score. Can you, can, can you come off the bench and score? Yeah. He's all right, Donnie. Yeah, we need to sign him. Uh, like eight, you know, eight, 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 <laughs> and then he said something to me because Larry Brown uh, was coaching at UCLA when I when I signed to go to Arizona State. Larry Brown got the got the UCLA job and came straight to my high school and said, you know, we don't 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 count us out, you know. But I had already made a made a commitment, a, a verbal commitment to Arizona State, wow. and I would have went wow. to UCLA if. My, my whole life, when I got to high school, my freshman year, I said, if John Wooden is still coaching at UCLA, I'm going to UCLA. John Wooden retired going into my senior year in high school. So I was like, well, you know, doors open, you know, so I'm, you know, I ended up signing, like I said, with Arizona State and Larry got the job and came to me and said, you know, hey, don't, don't discount us. And I was like, all right, coach, but I had a heart to tell him that I'd already committed. You know, I had to tell him, you know, the next week. But the one thing he said when I when I said I'll sign with Indiana, he said, "Listen, I finally got you. I tried to get you when you were at you know in high school to come to UCLA. I finally got you, and I went to Indiana and played there, and um, we got to the Eastern Conference Final two straight years when I played there. So we had some success, you know. And and Larry was, you know, again, I, I I've had the pleasure of playing with you know playing for you know two in two unbelievable Hall of Fame coaches, you know, Pat Riley and Larry Brown. I'm, I mean, they were two of the best coaches I've ever been around, uh, just the way they think the game of basketball, you know, and, and right. Larry Brown really got right. me thinking about being a coach because all the questions he would ask me during practice, and I would just, you know, answer him. And he said one day, he said, man, he said, Bob, I think you would be a really good coach if you decided to, you know, be a coach one day. And that got me thinking about coaching. So I owe a lot of that to, to, to Pat Riley and a lot to Larry Brown. Tell us a, tell us a, a Larry Brown story. Larry, you know what, the, the man, as great as he was as a, as a head coach, he did some of the craziest shit I've ever seen. Because, <laughs> like I mean, we would have great practices in Indiana, and we would be running our offense, and everything would be going great. And during the middle part of the season, he said, all right, we're going to change the offense, and everything now is going to be run on the left side. And we would go like, what? We just run like nine straight games, and you're going to change, and he would just change everything. You know, and it was almost like he got bored with us winning and, you know, it, it being as easy as, as it looked. And he would change our, our offense completely. Now, the one good thing that helped him do that is we have very smart players. You know, you just can't do that with a bunch of dummies. It just don't work. You know, we had some, you know, Reggie Miller, Hall of Famer. We had the Davis boys. We had Rick Smith, Derek McKee, uh, Sam Mitchell. We, we had a very good veteran-like team, but very, you know, very, very smart. And, uh, so he would be able to do, you know, do things like that. But I remember one story, we were playing a game and at halftime we went in and, and Larry's going off on us. I mean, just, just yelling and screaming at us and everything. He was going off on Reggie Miller. And, and Reggie was great. Reggie was one of those guys that, you know, he was our superstar, but never, again, just old school, never would disrespect or talk back to a coach. You know, he just sit there and listen and took it. And then we got dismissed and we were going back on the court. But I said, I got to use the bathroom. I go and use the bathroom. I come out and Larry's looking at the stat sheet. Now, Reggie's 10 for 11, 10 for 11 at halftime, right? And Larry, Larry looked at the stat sheet and said, damn. He said, I'm going off on this kid. He's missed one 
having turnovers or anything like that. And I, I turn, I come around the corner and he turns and he looks at me and I, I just, he kind of shook my head like, mm -hmm, you know, <laughs> I walk back out on the court. But he would catch that he would just be yelling to be yelling, you know, because Reggie had 25 points at half, you know, didn't turn the ball over, was playing good solid defense, but Larry would try to figure out something, you know, just kind of get in your head. And it, it was just great to just watch him. He, he tried to do that every so often. But I, I tell you what, he, he's one of the best coaches I've ever been around, though. Mm. Well, that's amazing. So there's a Bruce Lee quote that is around essentialism, I guess it's called now, you know, Greg McKeown's book, Essentialism. And um, so Bruce Lee was a proponent of this. And he said something along the lines of, you know, keep what is useful, dis disregard what is useless or discard what is useless and then add what is uniquely your own. So it sounds like you took a little bit of Larry, you took a little bit of Coach Riley, you took a little bit from your college coach, your high school coach. Um, what was it that Byron Scott brought to the table that was uniquely your own as a coach, your own flavor, your own, your own thing, your own approach? I think my tenacity, but also my patience. And my calmness, you know, mm -hmm. I, I, I got to throw in one coach, Rick Adelman, who I think is one of the most underrated coaches ever in the NBA. And, and I was assistant coach in Sacramento under him, and he was phenomenal, uh, you know, as far as dealing with players and things of that nature. He was truly a player's coach. So, yeah, all those guys that you mentioned, I, I took a little bit of something from each of them. But the one thing that I wanted to keep that was unique to me uh, was my tenacity, you know, my willingness to do whatever it took. You know, I mean, I, I, you know, coming from Inglewood to get to where I got to, if you didn't have, you know, some sort of tenacity or toughness or grit, you, you, you're not going to get there, you know, and I had all that. And I, and I tried to bring that in, you know, in, in my coaching style as well. And I, and I think a lot of the players probably felt it because, you know, every now and then as a coach, you get challenged, you know, and, and for me, you know, when I got challenged, you know, my, my puff, puff, my chest puffs out. And I'm, cause I, I look at that almost as disrespectful and Tim knows me. So I would look at you like you ready to fight. I would be ready to fight, you know, a player that disrespected right. me. And that never left, you know, that, that tenaciousness about me, if you're trying to disrespect me, you know, we're going to sit here and fight, you know, cause you know, at the end of the day, I'm a man, you a man, I'm not disrespecting you. I'm, I'm, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do as a coach, which is coach you and teach you. I'm not going to disrespect you as a man, but when you disrespect me, that will come out. You know what I mean? And that's that's what I brought to the table in every coaching job that I had, is that I took a little bit from all those great coaches that I had, but I also kept the Byron Scott that grew up in Inglewood, too. You know, mm -hmm. that just wasn't going to leave me. I love that. Um, you mentioned another word there, Coach, um, patience. Can you talk to yeah. us a little bit about that side of your personality? You know what, I think that that comes from my mom's side. You know, I've always, from, for some reason, have been very patient. You know, my, my wife says that to this day, you know, she, she said, just, you're just so patient with everything, with everybody. And I said, well, yeah, I, I, you know, I'm, that's just me. That's how my mom kind of raised me, you know, because she was like that. I, and I guess when you're raising kids and you've got four of them from the ages of eight, six, four, and two, you, you got to have some patience. <laughs> you know, I'm the oldest of those four. You got to have some patience, you know? So uh, I, I learned that at a very early age that, you know, you know, that, that old saying, good thing comes to those who wait, you know, and if you're not patient, you know, you know, if you're in a hurry or rushing, you're going to probably run right past it some of the time. So I've always been a very patient person. And I've always had that in my coaching style as well. 
of being patient with, with players and patient, you know, as long as the organization is patient, you know, I can be patient, but that's just my nature. I've always been that way and probably always will be. Amazing. Coach, was the, uh, was the, as, as you kind of made your way towards the end of that run of your career, um, you had the stop in Indiana, um, you played in Vancouver, um, I may be missing one stop there, but was there a point in that where you, that, that it was, it became pretty easy to, well, one of the stops that I didn't bring up, I want to get into at more depth is the, the I think the final stop, right. was back with the Lakers. Um, mm-hmm. But within that period, I'm always curious when a, when a player with, with, with some players, it's very easy for them. They say, you know what, I, I kind of wake up today and it, it, this is, I'm good. I've, I've had my fill and, and this is easy for me to make a transition. And then with, you know, some players, it's harder to kind of recognize that. What, what was that like for you? Well, it, you know, for me, it came uh, later because when I played, when I came back to, to, to the Lakers and then I went overseas for one year, when I came back from overseas, uh, just playing over there that year was extremely hard on me. You know, I mean, mm. on my knee, I, my knee was just bothering me almost all year. Uh, and they kept telling me it was tendonitis. I said, listen, I know what tendonitis feel like. This ain't tendonitis. Something is wrong. My knee is just hurting, hurt, you know. And that that was that was one of the hardest years for me as far as playing basketball. So when that year ended, and we ended up winning the championship over there. But when that year ended, when I came back home, within two weeks, I was like, I'm done. I'm done. I said, I'm, I'm going to retire. And, and I said, I can't do this anymore. And at that time, my ex-wife was like, you know, what are you talking about? You just won a championship over there. I said, yeah, but you don't understand. I, I, I said, I know me. I know my body. I said, and for me to get ready to play another season, the way I prepare for a season, my body is not ready for that anymore. I can't do that. You know, uh, the, the lifting, the running, you know, all the stuff I would do to get ready for a season to make sure when I came into camp that I was 110%. I said, my body is not it, it can't, it's not capable right now of doing that. My knee and everything, you know, it was just that knee, but I said, my knee is not going to allow me to do that. I said, so I'm going to retire. And she said, what are you going to do then? I said, well, I'm going to just take a year off. And then I said, I, I think I want to coach. And again, it goes back to, you know, being with Larry and being yeah. with Riles. Because Riles told me when I was 26 that I would be a coach one day. And I told him he was crazy. And then Larry <laughs> at 32 told me, you know, I think you would be a great coach. So you start taking, you, you know, you got Hall of Famers saying that, you know, you got to start, you know, start listening a little bit. So I, I decided that I wanted to get into coaching and Sacramento, you know, like two or three months later had a job opening and Jerry West called Jeff Petrie, who was the general manager over there and said, they had just hired Rick Adelman and said, I heard Rick Adelman is looking for assistant. Byron Scott wants to get into coaching. You guys should give him a call. And that's wow. how I got the Sacramento job. You know, I went up there and interviewed for it and uh, before I left the office and got back on the plane, Rick Adelman told me, listen, take the weekend, but the job is yours if you want it. And I was like, wow. So I went back home and, you know, I couldn't even wait till the weekend was over. I called him back and said, hey, hey, coach, I'll take it. You know, I'll take it. But, yeah, it, 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 wasn't, it wasn't hard for me. You know, Tim, like you said, a lot of players have a, a really hard time knowing when to quit or saying this quits, you know, uh, but for me, it was it, it was kind of an easy transition because I knew I had, you know, first of all, I accomplished a lot. I right. played a lot longer than I expected. You know, when I got drafted, I said, listen, if I could play 10 years in the NBA, I'll be good. You know, I ended right. up playing 14 years and one year of 15 years of, you know, competitive basketball. 
you know, so I was good, you know, so I, I think I was in a good place, you know, and, you know, my, my, my mind was in a good place. I was at peace with my decision and it enabled me to just move to the next phase. But I was preparing when I was playing in Indiana to become a coach. I started keeping a journal and all this stuff I was writing down. So I was already preparing for life after bat after wow. playing basketball. The other phase of, uh, of my basketball career is going to be coaching. What was it, Coach, about that time with um, with Rick Adelman that, that really furthered your development as a coach um, and, and kind of prepared you for the opportunities that would have come as a head coach? Yeah, Rick was just, like I said, he was such a great players coach, and, and he didn't let the little things. I, I remember we went in the locker room one time, and we had a player, and I won't put him on blast, but we, we had a player that wasn't <laughs> very happy, and uh, he was out of the rotation. You know, Rick had took him out of rotation. So we go in the locker room after a big win, and this guy is just sitting at his dead uh, at his at his locker. You know, took all his clothes off and just throwing them like you know, like he can't stand to have this uniform on. And we go back in the coach's office, and me and and uh, Pete Carroll, who's you know Pete, you know you know Pete Carroll, who's Hall of Fame coach from Princeton, he was Princeton, assistant yeah. coach too. And he was great. He, he was just unbelievable. I mean, me and him would hang out on the court. He would come down on my end. He's like, I'm going with bye because he knows how to work with the, with the guards in the small four. So I'm going down. <laughs> he got all these great wheels. I mean, this is another Hall of Fame coach. You know what I mean? Right. And this, this, this player was throwing stuff and everything. And we went back in the coach's office. And this is when I just was like, man, Rick, Rick is just an unbelievable coach because myself and John Wetzel, we were like, did you see that little MF, you know, just throwing his jersey off? I was like, man, we got to get rid of his ass and blah. And me and John are going off. And Rick was like, who are you talking about? And we told him who we talking about. He says, he said, oh, guys, don't, why are you worried about that? We got bigger, bigger things to be worried about than, than what he's doing over there. And I was sitting there like, I'd be damned, you know, and, and he was right, you know. He had already just kind of dismissed that kid, you know, as far as, you know, he, he's, not a, he's not a part of the game plan or a part of the team right now because he's on some other stuff. And I'm not going to worry about him. I'm going to worry about these guys. And that, that taught me a, a valuable lesson. When I talk about you have to, you know, really look out for 15 guys and what they're all about. Every now and then, you know, one, of those, one or two of those guys, you just got to say, you know what, I'm going to just leave him over and I'm going to focus on these guys. And that's what he taught me that day. And I thought, you know, I, I was sitting there like, wow, Rick, that, that's that's amazing how you can just really just not even pay him no attention of what he's doing. Because basically he wanted he wanted attention, but he's right. like, I'm not going to worry about that. You came back to the Lakers in that last uh, sort of playing, um, but almost player mentor role. And there was a young Kobe Bryant there and there was, you know, Shaq. There was, um, you know, there was a it was a young roster, but, you know, Kobe coming into that and and it sounded to me anyways and I've never had a chance to talk to you about this but rest in peace Kobe and uh, you know you really were one of your big responsibilities there was to be a mentor and help this kid this young kid come into the league and figure it out is that accurate yeah, to to a certain extent, Timmy. I, you know, it wasn't an assignment given to me. You know, Jerry right, Weston said, right. "I want you to take this kid and you know take him under your wing." We gravitated towards each other. Yeah, and you know, we we started to just hang out and get to know each other. 
Um, we would take walks and talk about basketball and I would sit on the bench with him. He would sit right next to me when things were going on. I would tell him what was happening. I would also tell him, you know, because at that time he wasn't playing. I said, so when I get in the game, I'm going to take advantage of this, 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 and this because of the way this guy is playing certain things. And in practice the next day, we would talk about it again and we would go out and we would play on the same team in practice uh, because Nick Van Exel and Eddie Jones was the starting guards, mm. you know, so it would be Gary Fisher, Kobe, and myself, and, and, the, and the late, great Jerome Kersey. We were all on the second team, and we would go against the first team, and we would beat their ass sometimes. It, as soon as Shaq went out the game, we would kill them, you know. It, <laughs> it would be, we would destroy them. But we, and I just, we, we just hung out. Uh, we got to know each other, you know, extremely well. And, and he was just a sponge, you know, so to come back and coach him the last two years, um, right. You know, obviously it was an honor. It was a pleasure. Uh, we, we got to spend two more years together and, and kind of go full circle, you know, from that, that 17, 18 year old teenager who came into this man who has you know, materialized into one of the greatest players ever. And that's something that he had told me he wanted to be when we would sit down. I was like, what do you want out of this league? He said, I want to be one of the greatest ever. Yeah. And, and I knew it. I said, man, the way you work, you know, your work ethic, you will be, you know, barring anything crazy, you know, you will be. And so we had, you know, we, we had a, a unique relationship and it was great to come back that second year or, or that, 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 sec that last time with the Lakers and have him for two years and um, just talk. You know, he would call me sometimes at four in the morning. Tim, I was like, what the hell are you calling me? If I said, Kobe, you, you, you see it with the voicemail. I'm not up. <laughs> and he would be like and you know him too like, i don't sleep coach i was like well i do it's right four in the morning i'm not getting up till like six you know and he would call some days and just say so what we doing for practice today and i was like all right this is what we're doing but you're not doing all this you know so right. we would have those great conversations and man to um just the maturation of kobe bryant from that 17 18 year old to that 37 year old man Right, you know, the steps he, he where he started to where he ended up. I, I was because I, I knew he was going to be great, but he, he still surpassed all expectations I had of him, mm. you know. And like I said, and, I, and I'm in practice and we're talking, and I knew he was going to be great. I said, You will be, you know, but I didn't know he was going to be third leading scorer in the history of the NBA, 18 yeah. all 18 all star. I, I just didn't fathom that type of greatness. And, you know, so to be a part of it, you know, from day one to the last day and to watch him, you know, throw up 60 on these dudes in Utah, you know, the right. last game. Oh, my I, gosh. You know, it, it was just, I was like, listen, you can, you can make this a, a, a movie and most people won't believe it. You know, it's nonfiction. They won't no. believe it. It just, you know, it just can't be true that a man, you know, played this many years and he go out on the game that he retired, his last game, he has 60, you know, right. nobody's going to come close to that. Not in our lifetime. You, you, know? you so mentioned, it was, yeah. It was you mentioned he's, he's, uh, he's a sponge. He was a sponge. You mentioned yeah. his work ethic. Was there, was there, you know, what, what else was sort of tipping you off, I guess, in those early days of you know who's this young kid and you know I've been around this league let me let me let me you know be there for him but you know what this kid's different it, was there anything else outside of those those sort of that resourcefulness the sponge and and kind of the work ethic that stood out for you 
Yeah, it, it was one more thing. He didn't back down to anybody, mm. even at 18 years old. You know, he would be in practice and he'd get hit or whatever. He'd jump off, man. He wouldn't, he would, you know, and, and I've told people this a lot because he would be on the back of the bus. He, he wouldn't be reading the funnies in the newspapers. He would have, you know, Wall Street journals. He would have Time magazine. He, he, I've never seen an 18 year old that mature. And that's the thing that I, I was just shocked about, that he was so far beyond his age um, as a rookie, you know? And, and I think that's the thing that, that helped him uh, develop the type of skills. Cause I, I think he understood at, a, at an early age that he wasn't the most talented. You know, I mean, he, yeah. and he was extremely talented. I mean, Kobe, sure. was extremely, but he wasn't the fast, didn't jump the highest, you know what? But man, his work ethic and his heart and his determination uh, was just, you know, unreal, you know, and, and to kind of watch that from day one, you know, materialize into what it ended up being. Uh, like I said, you know, I, I think he, he felt in his heart that he was going to be one of the greatest because that's what he said. But I just, I knew he was going to be great, like I said, but I didn't know he was going to have the type of career that he had. I, I, he, just, he just blew my mind with that. I finish every show with one question. You could go spiritual with this. You could go technical with this. Just what it means, what it feels like in your gut and your heart. Um, tell us what it means to you to be basketball strong. Oh, what it means to me to be basketball strong. Yeah. Uh, it, it means my, 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 my every being is involved. My mind, my body, my soul, my every being is to be involved. And, uh, you know, it, it's, as long as I'm on this earth, basketball will always be my first love. It has my mind, my body, my soul, and it always will. And uh, I've been blessed to have so many great people involved in my life uh, from a basketball standpoint. When I talk about the coaches, to the trainers, Gary Vitti, my main man, you know, yep. who who's one of the best trainers ever. Tim, you know, didn't get a chance to work with you long, but the, the two years that I did, man, one of the best strength coaches I've ever been around. I've always had great people, you know, with me, around me, and in me. And uh, like I said, it's uh, you know, it's my first love. It's my passion. I always will be. And uh, I thank God for uh, giving me the the talent to be able to uh, fulfill a dream. And uh, it's it's all because of Him that I'm here today talking to you guys. And I appreciate it. Man, we we sure appreciate it, and uh, it just means the world to me. And and. Uh, and to Phil, and, and I, I think, you know, I speak to, to anybody listening to this right now. Thank you for making us better from, from this, uh, this short, relatively short period of time. We all just got a lot better from that. Um, Coach, where, where can, would you have people seek out or um, see what you're doing or direct them to things that, that you're involved in that you, you'd want to um, bring them toward and, and have them uh, see, see how they can support as well? Well, I appreciate that. I mean, uh, officialbyronscott.com is uh, where you can see my Instagram and Facebook and all the funny and great things that we're doing together. And then byronscottpodcast.com is where you can see the uh, off the dribble uh, Byron Scott show, you know, with all the great guests that I've had so far. And, you know, we're, we're almost done with season one. We got uh, two more guests, one tomorrow being Joe, Joe Torrey, who's a comedian who's funny as hell. And then uh, the 10th episode is Michael Thompson. And then obviously we'll take a, a week or two off and we'll start season two 
And uh, just tell all you listeners, you want you want to catch season two. Season one was good, but season two we got Jamie, you know, Jamie Foxx, Cedric the Entertainer, and Vivica Fox, Meta, wow. our boy. Yes. yes. So season two is going to be hot. So uh, byronscottpodcast.com, check it out. Thanks, Coach. This was incredible. Absolutely incredible. Thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed today's show, and we hope you did, please give us a good review on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you listen to podcasts on. And so you never miss a weekly episode, be sure to subscribe and follow. You can find previous episodes on our show website. That's www.basketballstrongpodcast.com. For more basketball performance resources and nagging injury solutions, follow me on Instagram at TD Athletes Edge and follow Phil at Phil White Books. Until next week's episode, stay basketball strong.